Welcome to the God is Not an Asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. One of the things that is striking me as I've been listening to you, and one of the things that I also want to just kind of going back to something that you said earlier is I really appreciate the fact that you lifted up the, the names of the women who, who moved you um, into this into where into the public sphere and the reason that i appreciate that is because that labor that they did um it, it mattered and it had influence and that labor can often feel exhausting right for for those of us who are attempting to to move people who are in power or who are hold influence you know and so i i take i want i take that as very encouraging that you lifted up those names and i, I appreciate you for that the the other thing that's really striking me is, and this is where I kind of want to bring it almost more into an embodied practice for for myself and for those uh, you know people that I that I teach as a person who teaches uh, white bodied people um, about our own privilege and dominance is the fact that you know you are working at the very upper echelons of power in this country, right? You are are working. You are the epitome of. Um, I'm assuming that you are straight. You said you're married to a woman. So the straight white male, right? The pinnacle of, of social power in, in our society. And you are operating or were operating at the pinnacles of power in this country. And you chose to use that, your embodiment and your position of power and your influence. Um, once you pivoted, you know, you chose to use that for justice. You chose to use that for um, something better that, that when you, when you recognize what that was. Something better. Something better. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that that is, um, that is, that's the lesson I think that, that so many of us who are sitting here feeling very disempowered, we don't necessarily feel like we can do anything to influence anything that goes on, no matter, no matter how many times we vote, we, it doesn't seem to make any difference, you know, sometimes, but, but I think that we can take the lessons that you've been sharing with us and hear that it has, that there has been a cost, a great cost. And there have been positive things, you know, and, and I think that I don't know what exactly what I'm trying to say. I think I'm just trying to recognize that this is a, a lesson that all of us, even those of us who do not have access to the holy of holies in the American government, where traditionally, scripturally, men could only go into that, right? So you are using that power and that privilege and that ability to go into the holy of holies to help those who are not as empowered as you are. 
And I think that that is ultimately the lesson that we who are listening to you can take. Well, Carrie, thank you. And uh, thank you for, you know, what I emotionally feel is undeserved commendation because I'm just correcting the wrong that I did. And, and that's just an obligation. It's, it's not a virtue. At the same time, you remind me and you correct me because there, there were more than those two women. There was, there was a cloud of women, very powerful <laughs> women. My wife, Cheryl, among them, who without her support, I would not have spoken out. Uh, of course, there was Abby and there was Jody Cantor. There was Jody Cantor's co-writer. Uh, they were really 50-50, Joe Becker another Southern California. Um, where exactly are you guys, by the way? I am right outside Montclair, New Jersey. Oh, come on. I was born in Montclair. Whoa. Get I was out. born in Montclair, New Jersey. Yes, Glenridge Hospital. Glenridge oh Hospital. Right down the road. <laughs> wow, I thought you were West Coast, but... but no, I'm uh, West Coast. I'm in Santa Barbara. That's right. You're in Santa Barbara, okay? I knew, yeah. I, knew I was California connected somewhere <laughs> here. Uh, and, and there's some great Southern California and California folks uh, involved in this whole whole story. But I, I want to name Joe Becker because she did a lot of this work and she was very helpful to me on a personal level as much as anything else while she was being treated for skin cancer um, and, and yet pursued this without interruption. So, you know, the, there were lots of, of fabulous people and the majority of them women. But it, I, I'll interrupt myself. Again, if I may, uh, I was telling <laughs> David before, I think we, were, we weren't recording yet, uh, when I mentioned that I had the wonderful privilege of being Congresswoman Lucy McBath's guest mm -hmm. at her table during the Congressional Black Caucus annual prayer breakfast uh, just this past Saturday, which was, and, and I, and I said, uh, Carrie, I told Rob, I said, I, I suppose that the con congressional black caucus prayer breakfast is a little different from the other prayer breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that I, I think that you're probably right about that. <laughs> little, little different music was certainly much better. <laughs> Karen Clark cheered. <laughs> oh, yes. Every part of it was Dynamo, the historic Alfred Street Baptist Church. Oh, goodness. My town, Alexandria, Virginia, uh, had their choir there. It was exhilarating. Mm. Raphael Warnock uh, mm. was presiding with his um, co-chair, uh-oh, Dynamo woman, uh, rep, uh, delegate from the Virgin Islands, Oh, I can't remember her name. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Anyway, they were just a terrific duo. Um, and, uh, and the preachment by a Reverend Dr. Stewart. I think her name is Ginny Stewart. Jacqueline? No, 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 no. no Jenny. Uh, Ginny Stewart wasn't, uh, 
anyway, I, I just remember the Reverend Dr. Stewart. Oh, okay. Uh, who delivered the message. And it was on Jesus' parable of the persistent widow before the unjust judge, which, of course, connected with my world. Yes. Uh, and I'm telling you, she got the preach on and the anointing <laughs> was one of the finest pulpiteers I have heard in my 45-year ministry career. Uh, and by the way, I always have, a when I talk to a conference of mostly white clergy, which is the case for me, I'll always say, I'm going to name one of your fantasies right now. How many of you wish you were born black? And of course, there's all this uncomfortable squirming. I'm like, what mm -hmm. kind of thing? say you, every Sunday morning you wish you were born black? <laughs> <laughs> <Because> <laughs> it's the best pulpiteering on the planet. Uh, nobody can preach it up. And this woman, a scholar, a true scholar, but a dynamo communicator. Uh, and she made the point. She said, when we tell this story, we usually talk more about the judge than we do about the widow. Mm. And we think of her as having turned the heart and mind of the judge, but the scripture says nothing about that. The scripture mm. never tells us that his heart or mind was changed. All it tells us is that he had no fear of God and no regard for human beings. Mm -hmm. And yet, she got what she needed, what she mm -hmm. wanted, and what she deserved, justice mm -hmm. from the judge. How did mm -hmm. she do it? By punching him in the eye. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. she went into this exposition of the Greek text that with the force of her persistence, that had a physical force of its own, mm -hmm. she got what she needed, what she wanted, and what she deserved even from an unrighteous actor. Mm. So this is about the widow, the woman, and of course, how could she leave it alone? She said, we're not told her name, but it could have been. And then we heard the names of every woman who ever led in the civil rights struggle mm -hmm. through history. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still getting goosebumps. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just rehearsing all of that. So I, 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 I say all of this because, you know, in this whole process, uh, I'm given far more credit than I deserve. I had to correct a, 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 a serious and injurious error that I had made, you know, using corrupt influences, money and religion including prayer, by the way. There were many times I was in chambers with a justice or at a dinner table or in a conference room with a justice of the Supreme Court praying for him. They were all he, he's, by the way, um, that they would render, you know, use their place of power to bring, you know, respect for the sanctity of human life, read that, deny women uh, their uh, human rights, uh, the sanctity of marriage, 
strengthen the sanctity of marriage, which meant deny LGBTQ non-binary folks uh, their right to human intimacy and companionship, which I enjoy and they enjoy, uh, unfettered, uh, to, uh, you know, help our country respect the display uh, of faith and uh, respect for God, read that crosses and Bibles and Bible verses that alienate others who seek God on different paths or spirituality in different ways. So, but here was the deal. In, in praying, use, using prayer as the mechanism for that, prayer is a very privileged form of human communication. Very few people will interrupt a prayer or challenge a prayer or even question a prayer. They just defer to it. Granted a privilege it doesn't have because you can pray all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons. And you should be held to account for those prayers. Well, I wasn't. Uh, and, and so all of this is part of this story. It's not just about money, which of course was used here as a tool of corruption. It's also about religion. And I like to say, when religion is good, it can be very good. And when religion is bad, it can be incomparably bad. And I, I saw have a both question. I have a question regarding that. I have a, a dear friend of mine um, who is a former worship director. I'm hoping to have him on as a guest here um, soon. Uh, but he's a former worship director, uh, and he came out as a gay man. At, you know, ended up getting a divorce from his wife, and and he is now married to his husband. Um, and many of his family still pray for him you know they pray for him and await his return to um the fold right um those people it's 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 so easy to be angry with those people and it's also really hard to be angry with those people because as for as much with as much harm as they do they they are also they truly believe what what they are saying right and and they there is this a part of it where you can go, okay, they're they're in their mind, they're coming from this place of love in their mind, right? I'm curious, my question is, do you think is there any part of what was happening there that comes from a true belief in the right, in what they think is right, what these people that you were ministering to thought think is right? Or is it really, is, are, is it just a tool that they're using to manipulate the masses for power? I think it's a mix. And I'm, I'm not asking you to give, yeah, I'm not, I, I know that there's pastoral, true pastoral confidence that you can, you need to Yeah, hold. you know, I think it's a mix. The problem is the longer it goes on unchallenged, mm -hmm. at least unquestioned, but unchallenged unscrutinized, the longer it's held unaccountable, 
I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about prayer. Um, in any setting, the more, the, 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 the less it becomes about God and submission to God. And if we want to use the phrase obedience to God and more, it becomes more and more centered on me. It becomes a weird kind of um self worship in in a in a way um you know one of the things i i realized on my journey there came a moment call it epiphany or keen sense of the obvious uh when i realized as a minister of christ as a servant of of the lord of love whose nature is love bible is very clear on that. God is love, period. Now these remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. If I have not love, I have nothing. So love is right up at the top with God as inseparable from God. So there came a point in this journey of mine, the spiritual journey, when I realized that for decades, I was requiring people to leave their reality with all its pain and pleasures mm. and join me in my fantasy that the world mm. had to look and be the way I want and need it to be and only me. Mm. So if the world has to be made of only heterosexual couples, then in my mm. fantasy world, when we get there, the world will be perfect. There won't be any homosexual pairings, as I would have phrased it back then. Um, if, if in that world, every baby who is conceived is welcomed, uh, at birth and into life. And, you know, we all, t one of my fantasies in my pro-life activist years, and I went to jail for my pro-life activism. I paid a high price for it. I was quite serious about it. But in my fantasy life as a pro-life activist, whenever a woman was in crisis pregnancy, all she had to do was ask for help, and a bevy of white suburban Christians would come out of the woodwork and offer money and diapers and free child care and food and fun and babysitting and all the rest for that <laughs> mother and her child. The problem was that never happened. That never mm. happened. You just got prayed. <laughs> you got mm -hmm. prayed. And you yeah. got prayed that you'll come into my fantasy and live the way we live in my fantasy world. Yeah. And I came to this very distressing and disruptive, reorganizing moment in time where I realized that that's not my call. My call is to be like Jesus, who left glory and entered the world as a real human being and identified, empathized, identified, and even experienced the world as real humans do. He was really human. We confess that as Christians. We say fully divine and fully human. And even like the judge that you were talking about before, Jesus was changed 
by the people he encountered. Very often, the women that he encountered, as one example, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, which I was just reading a scholar, and I don't remember their name, but um, the scholar pointed out that later on, when some of the leaders, you know, accused Jesus of having a demon, of being a Samaritan and having a demon after he had spent time with the Samaritans, he goes, well, I don't have a demon. But he didn't bother correcting about the fact that he was, you know, and, and the this, this scholar was saying he was identifying with those that he had previously not condemned, but was like, eh, nah, you know, you're not, you're not who I'm here for, right? And, and, and the Samaritan woman changed that him in that. And also, uh, uh, Rob, um, I, I will just—you just pointed to the reason that uh, that we have uh, we have open floor at the end of every sermon in our community, because just as uh, prayer has that inviolable, sacrosanct, uh, uncorrectable aura, so does preaching. And mm-hmm. uh, when you when you open the floor. Uh, it becomes more humane. It, it, it becomes more normal. Fa- it, it becomes family. So, you know, and speaking of family, I, I mentioned to Carrie uh, when we were ta- when I, I was ta- talking to her about your, your book, uh, uh, Costly Grace. There is, you know, amid all of the, all of the politics and the corruption and the religion and all of that, the scene that stands out most to me is when your your family had a viewing of the movie uh, Armor of Light, as recorded in your book. Um, maybe you can recreate that scene uh, because that stands out for me. It stands out more than anything in the book. Yeah, you know, one of the results of that film, which was kind of an emanation, to use a very particular Supreme Court term, (laughs) as a matter of fact, uh, in Roe v. Wade, uh, is this term emanation, you know, that it's not the precise, but it's the spirit of the thing that emerges from it. And, you know, while the film itself was a narrow examination of why white, suburban, and upper-class evangelicals are one of the most likely groups to support unfettered Second Amendment gun rights and own and use firearms, which is really bizarre when you think about it. It's it's really peculiar. The so-called pro-life culture is very pro-death when it comes to guns. Just as an aside, I went through firearms training in it, 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 as preparation for that film. And my very professional firearms trainer said, whenever you take a weapon on your body, you must be ready to use it to kill and kill in an instant without a second thought, no matter the threat that presents itself. And keep in mind that in America, that threat is often a family member, can be a spouse. You're ready to kill your kin in an instant without a second thought. And he said, unless you're ready to do that, I'm not going to train you because you'll become part of the problem instead of the solution. In the moment you hesitate to kill, the gun will be taken from you, used to kill you, and go on to kill others. 
So you have to assure me. And I had to wrap my head around that. And it was a very weird and disturbing experience. But I, I kind of got there enough that he said, I'll train you. So these are people ready to kill. You go into the grocery store ready to kill somebody in the store. You, you put a gun in your bedside table ready to kill a teenage child if that child frightens you uh, or, or presents what you think is a threat. On and on and on it goes. Maybe kill yourself in a moment of depression. All of it. You're ready to kill. So that's why I asked the question, can you be pro-life and pro-gun? Uh, it's a, it's a very deep question, but that was this, that was the narrow focus. The broader one was all this, uh, antagonistic, very aggressive, very exclusive, exclusionary activist work that I had done for decades. And in doing so, I had alienated my own family, especially my children, uh, who, were young adults by the time I did the film project. Uh, and in that moment of time, when we could all see that work objectively sitting outside of it, it was very, very painful because I could see what they saw, what they had watched. I was never able to see it from their eyes. I could not empathize enough. I could not even sympathize. I, I wasn't even interested in seeing all that from their viewpoint. I got a little glimpse of it when my daughter and her then um, North African Saharan uh, partner uh, worked for the election of Barack Obama. And of course, I worked against him as a Republican, as a conservative, as a white evangelical. But I saw a little glimpse of what they saw, and I just rejected it. I just yeah. put it away. But it came roaring back in that screening with my family members. And it was really the first time I could see myself from their vantage point of pain. And it was transformative for me. You and said this your son is exactly, and, sorry, go ahead. Just, I was going to say, and your son came and put his hand on your shoulder? I mean. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. And we had been alienated and, you know, there was tension and distance and that act of love and generosity from him was so healing i hope for both of us i don't i try not to speak for him anymore <laughs> yeah he's an autonomous human being and you know he, but i think you wrote in the book that that you haven't touched in years yes that's right that's right yes so while I hear you when, when you say that you don't want to be, you know, this, that what you've done is not a virtue, it was an obligation or a responsibility, um, what you just described is a process that 
any of us who hold any form of, of dominance and privilege need to go through. And it's the very thing that we resist. It's the very type of pain that we resist. And that's why I, I, I'm, I want to acknowledge what you went through because it's, it's a brave thing. It's a courageous thing to be willing to be transformed in the way that you were transformed because it's so much easier to just stay blind, right? To stay, to stay outside of that circle of empathy. That's what I, in my work, that's what I say happens to, to straight white men because they don't have, as you, as you so eloquently said, they don't have um, the ability to, to the, ex- the lived experience, right. To, to see from inside. And so the, the stretch of imagination that they need to, to make in order to, to see, to, to reach that em- empathic circle is, is so much bigger, you know? So that work that you've done, that labor that you've done to go through, to, to reach this transformation, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. And it's really important as, yeah. At, for, for people of, in, in dominant positions to, to recognize and to learn from what you've done and to, to, to be brave as you have been brave. Thank you, Karen. Thank you yeah. for being with us and giving us uh, your time, your energy, your emotions, um, your wisdom. You give us hope and you are giving um, more and more people hope because you know, as you indicated, you know, just even, even since the book and, and the movie, your heart has just continued to grow. And you have become, uh, I'll call you, you have become safer and safer <laughs> in the world. Yeah. You, you, you have become safer and safer in the world. And, uh, of course, safer also means vulnerable. I, I mean, uh, yes. because you're not going around with, with, uh, with bars on the windows of your soul. Um, <laughs> you, you know, and so, yeah, safer means vulnerable, but, but I just want to celebrate you as a, as a, as a human and yes. bless you as a human and thank you for being yeah. Rob Shink, who, you know, came to, uh, it came to our world like a bat out of heaven. I mean, just uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I've received the warmest words I've ever received from the two of you. Thank you. It's real. For that. Yeah. Thank you. For Thank that. you. You know, I must tell you, I'm part of a wonderful community. Just recently, as a new visiting scholar of. Christianity and religious leadership at a marvelous, amazing, I don't want to call it an institution, it is truly a community in Newton, Massachusetts called Hebrew College and specifically the Miller Center for Interreligious Learning and Leadership. And I've been invited there at great cost to them. It's a pluralistic, I would describe it as quite progressive religious school for the training principally of rabbis but they do a lot more than that uh jewish rabbis a new genre and uh they're they're breaking all sorts of norms um very vibrant community of gay and straight and uh 
folks from all different configurations of family and and certainly life experience. And I've felt so privileged to be among them. But now I'm with the two of you in community, and that means a lot, too. So it's very strengthening to me. And I thank you for your generosity. Well, may you keep finding your people. <laughs> yes, yes. And count us among them continuously. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at God is not an asshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.